As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, Yeah, it's him. Others were saying, No, but it's someone like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And I went, and I washed, and received my sight. Where is he? I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He's a prophet. The Pharisees did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but we do not know how he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Pharisees. For the Pharisees had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents had said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Well, I don't know whether or not he's a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But for as this man, we don't even know where he comes from. Well, here's an astonishing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us? 
and they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Well, surely we are not blind, are we? If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. And so, Lord, may this passage speak to us. May we understand deeply, Lord, what's going on here. I pray, God, for all of us in the room this morning that our ability to see will increase. And God, I just simply ask this. If someone thinks, Lord, if someone thinks I'm just talking about spirituality, let them know, Lord, that we're talking about politics. And if someone thinks I'm just talking about politics, let them know I'm talking about spirituality. And may your voice be clear. And may we understand. In the name of Christ, we all said. You know, the uh, elders have been studying this passage now for several weeks, John chapter 9, this encounter of Jesus with the blind man. And I believe it's one of Jesus' most masterful teachings. I I think if Jesus intentionally chose to heal this blind man on the Sabbath in front of the Pharisees at the synagogue, He knew exactly what he was doing, and it was brilliant what he was trying to pull off. But we have to ask, does Jesus change anyone right then and there? Does does anyone move up to a higher level of love? Does anyone move up to a higher level of understanding or of compassion? Does Jesus get everyone nodding in agreement with him? And the answer has to come back. Not at all. No one bought into what Jesus was saying that day except for one guy, the blind man, the man who was healed of his his blindness. Two thousand years later, this morning, right now, on this patriotic weekend, this national celebration of our freedom, we have to ask, we have to ask, Will Jesus move our hearts to a bigger picture of love, compassion, and understanding of what God is up to? And that's what we want to find out. Jesus and the disciples passed by a man who was begging. It doesn't say the man cried out. It doesn't say that uh, he, he tried to follow Jesus. Jesus picked him out. We don't even know if the man knew who Jesus was. He's been blind from birth, which you need to think about. That means he's never seen a leaf on a tree or a blade of grass or perhaps even the crack in the street where he may trip unless he's learned it over years and years of traveling it. He doesn't know the look of anyone's eyes. He doesn't know any of that sort of thing. 
He's been blind from birth. And in that day, if you had that sort of an infirmity, it was a deformity. It was a curse, and it, it meant that you were being punished by someone. It meant something was wrong, and in good human nature, people tended to isolate and quarantine and keep them away from everyone else and not be nice about it. That's just the way it was. People looked down on you and pushed you to the margin of society. People don't like things that don't fit. And so when someone's born blind, they don't fit, and so they push them out. So naturally, Jesus' disciples position the blind man then as a theological discussion, okay? So our first audience in here to look to see if they're going to be able to learn how to see are the disciples. And the disciples, moving it to a theological discussion, a theological talk point, say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, these are the ones that are closest to Jesus. You think that Jesus would, would be rubbing off on them by now. By however long they've been hanging out with him, following the rabbi, you would begin to think like they're getting the heart of Jesus. They'd see a pattern going on. They were actually learning something from Jesus. You would begin to think that they would say, instead of, whose fault is this? They might say something like, Rabbi, another blind person, another marginalized outcast, we know you have a heart for them. We are now getting a heart for these kind of people. We know there's nothing really wrong with them. They're just simply, you know, having a problem, and we can help. Let's show God's love right now. Let's show the world that the kingdom of God is right here, right in the midst of us, right now, and that you are the Messiah. Let's heal him. Let me try and heal him, one of the disciples might say. But no, they don't do that at all. Instead, they continue to dehumanize the man. Two options. Whose fault is it? His or his parents? The blind man is nothing more than a little sort of theological sideshow. Now, for all their closest to Jesus, they're trapped in their own blindness. They can only imagine that someone is to blame. Neither of these options, whether it's his sin or the parents' sin, is helpful, and nor does it even move anything. Nothing happens. Blaming, fault-finding, finger-pointing. Jesus responds then with a third option, a completely new paradigm of how to understand what's going on. He says, neither him nor his parents sin. The man, this man was born blind so that the work of God could shine out in his life. I'm not sure we really like that answer. But that's what he said. Dr. Ruth Haley Barton suggests uh, in exegeting this passage, she suggests that Jesus is asking really the best question that's possible that even you and I could ask right now. What is God up to and how can I get on board with it? What is God up to and how can I get on board with it? That is the right question to ask. What is God up to, and how can I get on, on board with it? It's the question, everyone, we have to be asking right now, this particular weekend, this particular time in our country and in our nation. In the midst of church burnings, Confederate flags, gay marriage, presidential primaries, immigration, health care, do we ask Jesus, do we ask the Jesus question? 
What is God up to and how can I get on board with it? Or do we go to the disciples and say, who can I blame? Then Jesus heals the man. Lifelong blindness over. The next group of people who are given an opportunity to see if they are going to find their sight are the neighbors. The neighbors, the friends, people in the neighborhood, the people who've seen him beg for years. The neighbors see the man and they say, well, isn't this the man who was born blind and used to sit and beg? Now, some might think that the man's neighbors just just could not handle the fact that somebody that they'd seen blind their entire life, not to mention the fact that anybody who would be blind their entire life could now somehow become whole and regain their sight. How does that happen? As a matter of fact, most of us probably in the room are saying like, yeah, how does that happen? We're, we're, we're stuck in our categories of the way things are supposed to be. It's just a natural thing for all of us to do. Blind men that are born blind, they don't learn how to see. How does that happen? What's a miracle? I don't really like the word miracle. I like the word signs better. It's not that I don't believe in miracles. It's just simply I think it says that there's something exceptional going on. I don't think things are exceptional going on, like God is somehow violating his own rules of the universe by invading time and space and healing somebody. I think what's actually going on is that we just actually catch up with God and we begin to see that God's been doing a miracle every day. I think when the sun comes up, it's a miracle. I think when I watch little children running around last night full of joy and still having all their digits and their fingers and their eyes, I think that's a miracle. Maybe, maybe they just couldn't figure it out. Maybe they just couldn't figure it out. So they just go to cognitive dissonance. They just check out. That's eh, not the same guy. Can't be. And he's jumping him down, waving his arm like, I am the same guy. I'm your neighbor. No, you're not. I mean, if, if the situation weren't so pathetic and sad, it'd actually be comical. Uh, speaking of cognitive dissonance and people like believing stuff against all evidence to the contrary... Uh, years ago, a good friend of mine asked me uh, to take his son, his 10-year-old son and his friends on a camp out uh, for the 10th birthday party, about eight little guys, and um, we were going to camp out that night. But we wanted to put some fun into it, and so we came up with a fun scavenger hunt in the woods with a twist. Um, we went out earlier that week, and I knew this area, and there was an old foundation, an old rock foundation in the woods. And we hid a treasure map behind the rocks, sort of speaking, you know, so it could show a little bit. Uh, and on this treasure map, which we made out of an old chamois, you know, uh, from the garage, and we made it like a Calvary had found Native American treasure. And this was a map to the treasure. And um, we hid it, and I'm telling you, the map looked good. I was impressed, like, with my own self. I'm like, man, that's, that's an awesome-looking map. And, uh, and, but it was easy because 10-year-old boys are so, they're so gullible. I mean, <laughs> this thing worked like a charm. I mean, 
Uh, we go out there like, hey, look at that foundation. Go over there and kind of kick, kick. Hey, look, there's a rock that's loose. I wonder if there's anything beyond it. Like, I don't know. And, oh, it's a treasure map. It's a treasure map. And, of course, they're racing off through the woods in the poison ivy trying to go find this other foundation where we'd hid these incredible, authentic U.S. toy artifacts of arrowheads and jewels and all this other plastic stuff. Now, we accidentally left a price tag on one of the items, you know. And this one little guy, he pulls out the rock, and he's pulling, he goes, hey, what's this? And I go, hey, let me see that, son. Rip, throw it away like, it's a treasure. And they're all back at it, you know, just totally checked out. Forget the price tag. They wanted to believe, and that's just what they were going to do. And, and it, the story goes on because it wasn't until the next week when one of the kids' grandfathers was going to call the Smithsonian about the map that we had to confess and come clean. I'm telling you, man, you grandpas, you mess up my life. I'm just saying. I'd still keep this thing going with these guys. Now they're all like 40 years old probably. and be like, hey, remember that treasure map? Um, it was a really good map. Um, even in the face of glaring, obvious facts, like a man born blind who can now see, sometimes we'd rather just believe a falsehood. And that is a, is a form of blindness. That's a form of blindness. They just believe what they wanted to believe. So the neighbors say like, well, we'll figure this thing out. We'll take the blind man to the Pharisees. The religious leaders. And they'll figure this thing out. So the, the healed man, they bring the man to the, uh, the guy you could see. They bring him to the Pharisees. And they are in charge. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. They're very powerful. They're in charge of who is allowed into the synagogue and who is, is disallowed or who is kicked out or cast out of the synagogue. Very, very powerful thing in that culture. And as a blind person, we have to understand that he had been defiled his entire life because he was not a whole person. All right? I know it, you know, messes with our sensitivities. But nonetheless, he was not allowed in. He had probably begged his entire life outside the synagogue. Never allowed into the place. So perhaps the neighbors were saying like, hey, Pharisees, look, this guy's been healed. Do you want to like, you know, do something to say like, you're now legit, you're cool, come on in. First time in his life. Maybe they wanted to do that. Maybe, because the scripture doesn't say what their motivation was, maybe they wanted the Pharisees to explain, how's this guy see now? Just tell us. You're the God guys. Tell us how this is working. Or, most likely, since the man had said, the man Jesus had smeared mud on his eyes and told him to go wash, and that's how he was healed. Most likely, the neighbors wanted the Pharisees to validate Jesus the rabbi as the healer. Now, the Pharisees, being very moral men, they were expert, experts in the Torah, the, the Old Testament religion. We call it the Old Testament, the law of Moses. And from the second that they found out that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, none of the healing mattered at that point. I mean, backstory. John chapter 8 culminates a huge fight that goes on for two chapters between Jesus, a big debate between Jesus and the Pharisees, leading up to the famous line where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And he uses the holy, unspeakable name of God to describe himself. <laughs> the Pharisees are like, kill him. Kill him here. Kill him now. 
He's a blasphemer. He's called himself God. So you can tell going into chapter 9 here, bad blood between the two parties of Pharisee and then Jesus. Okay? So that's your backstory on the whole thing. So when they hear the word Jesus doing this, they're immediately lit. All right? Like this, this has got to be wrong. Not only that, but rule keeping to the Pharisees is more important than compassion. Adherence to the law is more important to the Pharisees than any other thing else because they did not want to violate the synagogue and the holiness of what was going on. Purity was everything to them. Okay? The Pharisees had power, lots of power, and they were judgmental and they used it as much as they could. They thought they were doing right. And it reminds me of those old words from Gandhi that said, those who think they are doing the most good do the most harm. And he was referring to the Nazis during World War II. The Pharisees had lots of power, and people feared them. They could get kicked out of the synagogue. And it was a really big deal back in 30 AD to get kicked out of the synagogue. There was only one synagogue in town. It wasn't like they could say, like, well... I hate your synagogue. I'm going down the street to the other synagogue. Like, no, that's not going to happen. There's only one. And, and to press the point, what we have to understand, it would be like today if somebody had the power, some bureaucracy or whatever, had the power to take away your credit cards, take away your bank accounts. You, had to, you were reduced to dealing with cash. You were, they took away your driver's license. You couldn't drive on the streets. It would like be having no health insurance, <clears throat> not allowed to shop at any grocery store or enter the mall. It would be like that. You were cut off from society. It would be like years ago when the Nazis made the Jews wear the yellow star of David. And they were forced into the ghettos in Poland. It would be like uh, having to wear the scarlet letter A for adulterer uh, sometime past in our own country. I can still remember the marks on people that other people had put on people. I remember sitting in someone's living room and looking at an old man and with no teeth. And he had... Tattooed on the inside of his wrist. You know what they were? Prisoner of war camps from the Nazis. Tattooed in. He didn't think it was special. He didn't think, hey, look at me. He wasn't ashamed of it. He just had a faraway look in his eye. As though he was remembering those days. Getting excluded from the synagogue was social, economic, political, and religious death. And the moment the Pharisees heard that Jesus had healed the man, it was not going to work. They were out to eliminate Jesus. And the Pharisees are gunning him down the first chance they get. So the Pharisees, not knowing what to do and being blind and unable to see, decide to call in the parents of the blind man. The next people who are given an opportunity to see. They go to the man's parents to find out if they know anything about Jesus healing their son. Now, the Pharisees make it look like they're going to go interview them. We're just fact-finding, just gathering a few facts. But everyone knew the Pharisees, and they were, these parents were shrewd, and they knew this was not an interview. This was an interrogation, and, and they could be incriminated at any moment in the thing. They come in. Is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how does he now see? And the parents knew that if they said Jesus did it, 
if they colluded with Jesus, if they somehow any such way affirmed Jesus in any shape or form, they might be kicked out of the synagogue right there and then and be cut off from the community. So they just throw their own son under the bus. Uh, yeah, that's our son, and he was born blind. Uh, we don't have any idea about how he's able to see. Uh, go ask him. He's of legal age. Back, back, back. They backed up. The Pharisees had already quizzed the healed man, and, told, and he had told him what had happened. Jesus, the prophet, healed me. The Pharisees tell the man that Jesus is not a prophet, that he is a sinner. Not a Messiah, a sinner. And at that point, the healed man uh, asked the Pharisees, well, if he's a sinner, then how do you explain him doing some, so, something so wonderful and so good as giving me back my sight? How could that not be from God? Pharisees are livid with this guy. You were born entirely in sin. You were born in sin. You were born blind. You were born cast out of the synagogue. You've never even been in. You're cut off. You're not even one of us. You're part of the problem. And you're trying to tell us who's a sinner and who isn't a sinner? And at that moment, they officially kicked him out of the synagogue and he became basically a non-person. Now think about all this for a moment. Think about the whole thing. Think about all of these people up here. Disciples, neighbors, Pharisees, parents. Did anyone at any given moment say, Wow, wow, a guy who was born blind can now see he can see the blades of grass and the sunshine. He can see the moon. He can see a pretty girl's eyes. He can see. Nobody, nobody went there. Nobody threw a party for him. No one did anything to affirm the guy. No one. No one. No one did that. Not even the parents. So Jesus finds the man. The only one who understood what was going on. And he finds the man. And it sounds like he found him in the synagogue with the Pharisees standing very close. And who knows if the neighbors and the parents, certainly the disciples had to be close by. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus asked him. And, you know, remember the blind man had not seen Jesus. He only had mud smeared in his eyes by this some person. And, and the blind man says, well, who is he? And he says, well, you've seen him, and the one who is speaking to you is he. And at that point, the blind man who is now healed of his blindness says, Lord, I believe. Calls him Messiah, my King, my Lord, I believe, and worships him. And then Jesus says this, I came into the world, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see. And those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees, it says, uh, were near him and heard this and said, Surely we're not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. 
And now, everyone, the story comes back to us. Surely we're not blind, are we? We see, right? We're on the inside, right? On this weekend, on this patriotic, nationalistic, freedom-loving weekend, bracketed between a Confederate flag and the Supreme Court providing rights to gay couples. I feel we have an entire nation saying, oh, oh, I see. I got it. Those people, they're wrong. And, and those people, they're haters. And, and I'm right. And I'm just. And I'm smart. And I can see perfectly clear what's going on in this country. I spent the weekend with some liberal ideologues. The weekend before that, I talked with uh, someone who thinks that the Affordable Care Act is hurting their people. Yesterday, I read the Declaration of Independence. And then I read following it, a column, an op-ed column, denouncing Christianity as historically intolerant. It's just all over the place. But I'll say this. The more I pray, the more it all sounds like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And there's no love in it. The more years I spend on the planet, I see around me disciples and neighbors and Pharisees and families all attempting to claim, I see, I, am, I see, I, nobody else sees, I'm the only one who sees. They get on the internet and they get on Facebook and they say, I see. Oh, I'm going to tell you all about it. And I'm going to give you five links about how you're wrong. This has kind of been building on me as I've been studying this passage. And, you know, I do the Psalms uh, every day. But somehow it came into my mind. Um, I know I'm kind of an old guy, so Louis Armstrong came into my mind. And I kept thinking about that song. Uh, what a wonderful world, you know? And I thought about that, those lyrics, and I played it over and over. I found the old CD down in the basement, stuck in the dash. And he says, I see clouds of blue and clouds, I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day and the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And I just needed those words, that song, you know, to say, there's hope. In the midst of all this clanging bells and gongs and junk. I'm not checking out. I just need to know what God's up to and how can I get involved with it. Who is celebrating God's grace? Who is rejoicing because we have it so good? Who is helping others that don't have it so good? Marta, uh, Pastor Marta, Pastor Garrett, and myself uh, spent uh, about three days ago an afternoon with two Nigerian pastors who were here. Really, I think they were coming just to take a break. But they wanted to find out some best practice. They wanted to find out, hey, what do you guys do? And what are your struggles? And what are your challenges here in America and the church? Because in Nigeria, we have some too. And so we said something like, well, you know, maybe people don't come to church as much. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we made up some stuff. And then, you know, being polite, we said, so pastors... What are your struggles? And they said, well, Boko Haram is raping and killing our flocks. And 
the new believers are being stoned to death. And I thought, yeah, yeah, it's kind of like our problems here, too. What do you say? And when I told this story to someone, they wanted to start an argument about whether or not Boko Haram were, you know, radicalized jihadists, Muslims or not. Make it a theological discussion. And then I thought, when I get on a plane... And I don't like to admit it, but maybe you're like me. And you see someone who, you know, you think looks Middle Eastern. And you think, "Uh uh-oh. You know, maybe I'm the only one. Over the years, I've been harangued and belittled and classified and for speaking out against violence and told, you know, who are you to teach us what's right and wrong? Stick to your Bible, preacher man. And leave the running of the country to us. Because this voice of Jesus doesn't apply to politics. You want to learn to see? You want to raise your consciousness? Then here's what you must do according to Jesus. Become blind. Become blind. How do we do that? You confess Jesus as king, as Messiah, as Lord over you and everything else. King of your family. King of your work king over your entertainment, over your finances, and yes, especially your politics. And you ask that question, what is God up to and how can I get on board with it? How do we do that? It is a journey. The the healed man, the blind man, moves along a journey from he's just a man named Jesus to he's a prophet to he's the son of man, this man from God, to finally falling on his knees and confessing he is the Messiah. And at that point, he could see, spiritually speaking. At that point, he had all of his sight, physical as well as spiritual. Who's going to take this journey these days? Who's going to do this? Who can can make this confession on this 4th of July weekend, following lots of politics and, you know, who was willing to be smeared by Jesus? The man's parents were too scared. The neighbors wanted to be told what to do. The Pharisees were like the religious right, proud and elite and, and moralistic. And, and if there were any liberals, and there aren't really any liberals in the thing, just to use the labels and the categories we have available to us today, if there were any liberals, it must have been the, 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 the crushing, hawkish Roman Empire trying to tell everybody, we know how the world ought to run at the point of a sword. But nobody, nobody celebrated the blind man regaining his sight. And that is our job today, 2,000 years later. We have the privilege and the responsibility to celebrate the blind man's healing. Listening, everyone, is the spiritual discipline we must engage in. It's not fancy, it's not sexy. But it gets the thing done the way it's supposed to be done. If you want to know what God is up to and how do you get on board with it, we have to begin to learn to listen instead of talking. Listen to our children, listen to each other's dreams, and yes, listen to their political rants. But we must listen if we want to be able to listen to God. I've been experimenting the past few weeks and failing miserably at a spiritual discipline. 
each time I listen to someone, especially when it gets uh, into an argument where we have a disagreement, um, you know, just chatting or whatever, nothing really bad. Each time I listen, uh, and I, I just have been trying to take a long, slow inhale and exhale. Because, you know, I don't think anybody else has this problem on the planet. But when somebody else is trying to talk, I'm already thinking about what I'm going to say. And then I step on what they say before they finish, you know, and I start talking. I know nobody else ever has done that. I mean, that's just me. Nobody's ever done that sort of thing. But so I'm trying to wait for them to finish when I'm doing it right. I inhale slowly and then I exhale. Now, maybe it's just an old man problem or whatever, but usually by the time I've done that, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> but moreover, I begin to have more compassionate thoughts, and the fire is gone. And I begin to think in humanizing terms. Maybe Jesus just smeared the, bud, the mud on the man's eyes. Maybe he just did it just to slow the thing down. Just to slow it down. When I do the sigh thing, I'm not rolling my eyes like, oh yeah, would you please finish because I got something really important to say. I'm just settling down. A silent prayer, a deliberate pause about my compulsions and my chaos that wants to fire back and finish the thought because I'm so much smarter than them, I'm sure. I lost every one of those debates lost every one of those arguments, never made a single point, never had the last word, never got the zinger in. But I felt like I could see. So let's train ourselves. You want to try this afternoon? You want to try tomorrow at the workplace or with other people? You want to try this sort of thing? Like somebody's talking, you've got something to say. Just try waiting for them to end, which is first the hardest part. And then just simply just take a nice long breath. Just. Silence is the first language of God. I think God is sitting around waiting for us. Taking a large inhale and an exhale if God breathes. <laughs> waiting for us. What's God up to and how can I get on board with it? That's the question we ask this weekend. That is what allows us to see and celebrate healing. Would you stand with me, please? And we'll end with the uh, Celtic blessing that we like so much around here. And just a couple of words about it. Um, you know, at the end, the, in the Celtic tradition, they cross themselves. And you're like, hey, you know, they cross themselves. You go this, and then you go left, right. And... And you're like, well, isn't that like Catholic and Orthodox stuff and all that kind of mumbo-jumbo? And, and the answer is, yeah, it really is. And, um, and, but what's going on is that they are saying, and you do it when you enter the sanctuary and when you leave and when there are prayers and when you give glory to God. And it's a constant reminder that says, I am marked, I am marked by the cross of Jesus. That is the sign over me, my coming and my going. When I leave these doors and when I come back in these doors— this is who I belong to. It is Jesus. You're right? And it is a way of saying, remember, you know, you're standing right now as a form of worship, right? You're standing in the sanctuary. And we sing and we raise our voices. It's a form of worship. We get our bodies involved, and this is just one more way. It may feel weird to you. It used to feel weird to me. 
doesn't feel, well, it still feels a little weird to me, actually. But it's something that I do to remind myself that says, I will not be controlled by my own weirdness that says, I don't do that. I'm going to violate my own consciousness and do this even if it feels strange. And you know what? Now I do it and I say, yeah, I'm marked by Jesus. Try it and see what happens. Join me. Let's do this all together. Think about your children or turn to somebody or, or just watch the screen if that's not your thing. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home again.